0: Guided tours. I'm sure that most of us at some point in time have been on a guided tour. And whether we're talking about the hourly tours that are available at many museums across our country, or we're talking about the week-long tours that are available at many vacation destinations The tour guide industry is a rapidly growing sector of the global travel and tourism market. And according to one estimate, there are more than 400,000 full-time tour guides all around the world. That's a lot of tour guides. And as we consider how this industry is constantly looking for more employees to guide their tourist groups... Well, there should be no doubt that many tour guides uh, who, you know, are are in this industry are just terrible, (laughs) you know, and and I'm sure we've come across some of them. The chances are many of us here this morning have a story about a tour guide who was so bad that they literally ruined the vacation. And I'm not, uh, I'm I'm sure we're, we're not surprised to learn that there's a growing list of stories, you know, about terrible tour guides who failed to properly guide their group. I looked at some of these stories over the last couple of days and, and stories include like tour guides who were unable to handle an obnoxious person within the, l- the larger group. And they just l- allowed some obnoxious person to just kind of control the group. And, and then there are the tour guides who just don't have the right attitude. You know, they, they've got the, the angry face all the time. They're very quick with their responses and, and uh, not very kind at all. And so they don't really know how to handle a large group, though they know the content of the tour. There are stories of tour guides who didn't really know the details of the location that that, that they were touring, and so they weren't able to answer questions that were uh, outside of the realm of their presentation. And then there are stories about just terrible tour guides who actually got lost along the way. You know, tour guides who didn't know where they were headed, you know, and it's just for this reason that many travelers would rather just go out on their own rather than experience a, a terrible tour guide. Well, listen, it's in similar and yet a spiritual fashion that there are many in the church today who just really want to go out on their own because maybe they had a bad experience with God. God didn't take them where they wanted to go or give them what they wanted to to receive. And so it's just, you know, they're just going to do the Christian life on their own now. Rather than allowing the Lord to lead them, they treat God like he's some sort of terrible tour guide. And so they just want to get away from God and do Christianity on their own. And listen, if this is something that's true of you, then I encourage you to realize that the guidance of God is always perfect. The guidance of God is always perfect. So if you have an issue with the guidance of God, guess who's wrong? It's not God. God is a perfect guide. And And it's for this reason that I want to encourage you this morning to realize that God is the one who needs to be guiding us, not we ourselves. With that, it'll help you to know that you know, the Lord provides us with godly guidance in several different ways. First of all, godly guidance involves scriptural intelligence. Secondly, we'll learn that godly guidance involves sacrificial benevolence. Thirdly and finally, we'll see how godly guidance involves spiritual endurance. Well, with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Here we find Paul. He's encouraging his audience to rely... On the divine guidance of God. And as you make your way to the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that Paul began this chapter by encouraging his audience to, excuse me, he, he wanted them to realize that the Lord is calling every Christian to keep moving forward in faith on the path of pure progress. We considered that in our study last week. And knowing that the path of perfection is filled with many distractions and many difficulties, Paul reminded his readers that we all need godly guidance every day so that we can move forward in faith on the narrow path of righteousness. Now with this as the focus, I want to consider how Paul explains this here in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. If you would look with me there at verse 5, here Paul declares, Now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Now, here in our text today, we find Paul, he's asking the Lord to provide the people at the church there in Thessalonica with godly guidance. And in order to prove my point, let's take a moment to consider the definition of the word direct that Paul uses here in this verse. The Greek word, which is rendered direct, well, it's used of those who provide guidance straight towards something. If you're asking someone to tell you how to get someplace, you want them to provide you with direct directions. You you want to know the fastest way to get from point A to point B. And so that's what this word direct is referring to. According to Greek scholar Spiros Odiades, this was generally in reference to a guide or someone who directs one's way on a journey or to a place. And with that being the case, the scholars who created the Bible in basic English, they render verse 5 in this way. May your hearts be guided by the Lord into the love of God and quiet waiting for Christ. Now, with this in mind, we should take a moment to ask, well, how does the Lord go about guiding our hearts? How does God go about guiding our hearts? And in order to answer this question, I should first point out that the Greek word, which is translated here, heart, well, it's not only used in reference to the organ that pumps blood through our circulatory system, but the same word was also used by the Greeks metaphorically in reference to the immaterial seat, of our moral and our intellectual life, which not only includes our emotions, but also our intellectual abilities to uh, to think rational thoughts. And in order to better grasp my point, I want to consider a handful of verses that support what I'm saying about the heart. You see, it's in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 14, where we learn that the immaterial heart is actually the seat of our affections. And it's in Luke chapter 24, verse 32, where we learn that the immaterial heart... Is the place that contains our perceptions or our perspectives. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 18, we learn that the immaterial heart, it includes all of our thoughts. Our thought life exists within the immaterial heart. And in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, we learn that the immaterial heart also includes our understanding of things. In Romans chapter one, verse 12, we learn that the immaterial heart contains the power of reasoning. And listen, there are many more verses that help us to see that the heart, uh, in in a metaphorical sense, this is the seat of our imaginations, our intentions, our emotions, and our intellectual capabilities. And with all this in mind, it seems to me that our God is uh, uh, preparing to guide us by providing those who trust in him with the divine intelligence that we need so that we can walk in obedience. In order to grasp the Lord's plan for providing us with this godly guidance, we should take a moment to consider the way in which the Lord has provided us with the divine instructions that we need. And with this as the focus, we should take a moment to consider the way that the Holy Spirit has inspired the scriptures that we have, and so, so that we can use the scriptures to receive the scriptural intelligence of godly guidance. And to make my case... I want to consider the promise that the Lord Jesus presented in John chapter 14. There he declares, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. From this we can see that the Holy Spirit was sent to provide the apostles' with the help that they needed so that they could remember everything that the Lord taught them during the days of his earthly ministry. That's right, the Holy Spirit was sent to provide the apostles with perfect recall. And he provided them with perfect recall as they set out to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus without debate. But not only that, the Holy Spirit was also sent to provide them with more information about God's plan ...for the church age. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 16. There the Lord Jesus declares, "...when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you." In other words, according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit was not only sent to help the apostles to remember all of the teachings of Jesus but the Holy Spirit was also sent to provide further guidance, and especially for the leaders who were being raised up to establish the foundations of the Christian church. And listen, this not only included the Spirit-inspired instructions, which were being presented in the pulpits of the first century churches, but this also included the information that we now find in the New Testament scriptures. For example, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's verses 10 and 11, where Paul declares this, He says, according to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, from this, we can see how the Holy Spirit appointed Paul to become this wise master builder of the church age. And according to the grace of God... The Holy Spirit provided Paul with the godly guidance that he needed for establishing the foundational principles of church age theology, which are all built upon the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. It's for this reason that I always encourage Christians to spend their time studying the New Testament epistles so that we can receive the godly guidance that stems from the scriptural instructions that are focused on the church age. At the same time, it's also important for us to remember what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's verses 16 and 17 where Paul declares, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, all of the scriptures that we find throughout the the Bible All of the Scriptures were given to guide us. And while the New Testament epistles provide us with with specific guidance for the dispensation in which we live, every verse in the Bible is still given by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit and is therefore profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, as well as for instruction in righteousness. Simply put, the Scriptures, all of them were given so that we could receive the godly guidance of scriptural intelligence. I like the way that the Apostle Peter confirms this in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's verses 19 through 21 where he declares, We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, That no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. According to the Apostle Peter, the Holy Spirit of God was the one who came and helped the authors of the Bible to write out the Holy Scriptures. You know, when people take issue with the Bible and say, well, it's written by men. And so therefore it's flawed and these sorts of things. Hold on. Are you saying that God can't empower humans to perfectly create his word? Because that's what Peter says happened. The Holy Spirit inspired, and, and, and even, you know, with the breath of his, own, of his own mouth, so to speak, you know, provided these words, which you know, were penned by men. And, and according to Peter here, you know, all of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to Jesus Christ have been now confirmed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus has confirmed the prophetic word of God as being true, and we would do well then to heed the word of God by treating it like a flashlight, which is able to illuminate a dark place. Now, if you've ever found yourself in the middle of a storm and the lights go out, then what are you scrambling for? Well, what are you looking for when the lights all go out? You're looking for your Bible, right? No. You're looking for a flashlight because you need a flashlight to then find your Bible, right? So uh, the Bible is like this, spiritually speaking. When the lights go out, you're looking for your flashlight, and then you discover that the batteries are dead, and then you're scrambling for batteries, and keep batteries in your flashlights. But listen, the Scriptures are like a spiritual flashlight, if you will. It's it's an illumination of intelligence that provides us with guidance so that we can see the path that's before us. I like the way that the psalmist put it in the 119th psalm. It's uh, verse 105 where he declares, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's in the scriptures of of God's word where where we find the the illumination that we need for the path that's before us. The word of God is like a guiding light that helps us to see which way we ought to be heading. And so while many are stumbling around in the the spiritual dark as they try to figure out which way they ought to go, the born-again believer will do well to seek the godly guidance that comes from the divine instructions of the scriptures then as we prayerfully study God's word, the Holy Spirit will speak to us and lead us by his word into all truth by providing us with the scriptural intel that we need to make good decisions. With that being the case, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I seeking guidance from God by spending time searching the scriptures for intelligent instructions? Or am I just stumbling around in the dark all the while wondering if I'm heading in the right direction? And in order to, you know, zero in on this a little bit further, when it comes to the movies we watch, are we seeking the scriptures for the intelligence we need to make good decisions about what we put in our brains? When it comes to the music we enjoy, When it comes to the the hobbies that we engage in, uh, in our free time, are we looking to God's word to direct us? Are we looking to the word of God for the intelligence that we need to say, no, we, we probably shouldn't be a part of that. We shouldn't be watching that. We shouldn't be listening to that. Or do you just, you know, just make up your own mind along the way and just watch whatever you don't want to watch and... Listen to whatever you want to listen to and then wonder why you're not growing and, and, and why you feel like you're lost in the dark and not headed in the right direction. Well, listen, if you fill your mind with darkness, don't be surprised when you walk around in the dark. I just can't hear from God. What are you filling your brain with? What's in your heart? Darkness or light? Light. When it comes to the political leaders we support, when when it comes to the political pundits that we listen to, are, are we looking to God's word for instructions on how to navigate these muddy waters? Are we allowing God to truly guide us with scriptural intelligence, or are we just out there on our own, making up our own mind along the way? Please trust me when I tell you that the Lord wants to provide us with godly guidance, but There are many in the church today who who don't want a guide. They don't want a tour guide. They they don't want God to guide them. They, They just want to make up their own mind along the way. They just want to do whatever they want to do. But I would encourage you to allow God to guide you. And the Lord wants to provide us with godly guidance through scriptural intelligence that we receive when we study the Word of God. At the same time, godly guidance also involves sacrificial benevolence. And with this as the focus, let's take a closer look at our text today. Here we find Paul. He's referring now to the love of the Lord. And I want to look here again, beginning at verse 5. Here again, Paul declares now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Now, I want to stop right there. I want to take a moment to consider how the Lord provides us with godly guidance. And, And he does this by directing our hearts into the love of God. Now, just to be clear, it'll help you to remember that the word direct, it's translated from a Greek word, which was used of those who provide guidance straight towards something. And as we take a closer look at this verse, we learned about the way that God wants to guide our hearts into a full understanding and expression of the love of God. With this in mind, it'll help you to remember that the Greek word, which is rendered heart, it's a word that refers to the intellectual capabilities of the mind, which includes our imaginations and intentions, even our emotions. At the same time, the, Greek word, uh, the same Greek word is also used in reference to the immaterial fountain of our passions, our desires, our appetites, and our affections. And what this means is that the heart of man is not only the seat of our intellectual capabilities, but the heart of man is also the soul from which springs the various forms of love that we experience. And there are many different forms of love. You know, after church on Wednesday night, a group of us went over to a burger joint here, and man, I love that burger. And, and, and then I went home and, and hugged the wife that I love so much. And these are two different kinds of love. I don't love my wife in the same way that I love burgers. I love burgers a lot. But I love my wife much more. <laughs> so don't get it twisted. But burgers are really good. There are different kinds of love that we can experience, and all that takes place within the soul And with that, it'll help you to know that the ancient Greeks actually had several words that they used to describe the the different kinds of love that we can experience. And just to name a few of these words, they used the word eros in reference to a romantic or passionate form of love. In other words, eros is an intense form of love that arouses romantic and sexual feelings. Then there's the Greek word philia, uh, which uh, refers to an affectionate form of love. And just to be clear, this second type of love is a platonic affection that is you know, typically found between friends and free from physical attraction. Then there's storge, which is a familiar love. And, and uh, uh, this is a familial love, I should say, which is a natural form of affection experienced uh, between family members. Uh, and, and then there's storge, and uh, storge can also be used to describe the patriotic love uh, that we feel for our country. So storge is a familial love or a patriotic form of love, love for our country and countrymen. Uh, But as we consider these natural forms of love that we all experience from time to time, it'll help you to know that Paul was actually referring to a fourth form of love. And with this as the focus, let's take a closer look at verse 5 again. There Paul declares, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. Now, again, I want to stop here because I want to point out that when Paul here refers to the love of God, he's not talking about eros. He's certainly not talking about the affection of philia, uh, nor the patriotic love of storge. Instead, Paul here is using the Greek word agape, which in this context, it refers to a selfless or sacrificial form of love. Not only that, but the same Greek word can also be used in reference to a boundless benevolence, which results in charity or empathy for others. Now, in order to better understand the agape love of God, we should take some time to consider how the love of God was extended to us according to his charitable benevolence. With this as the focus, I want to consider the way that Paul explains it in the letter that he sent to the church there in Rome. So hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. As you make your way to the fifth chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to point out that the word benevolence, it refers to the loving kindness that leads us to give generously to those who are in need. And according to Paul, it's the loving kindness of God that led Jesus to provide us with the generous gift of grace that we can't earn, nor do we deserve. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 5. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 6. Here he declares, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Here in these verses, we find Paul describing the agape love of the Lord as a generous gift of charitable benevolence. And the proof of my point can be found in the fact that Christ Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. In other words, prior to our conversion to Christ Jesus, we were ungodly sinners who don't deserve the love of the Lord. And while it's true that we don't deserve the benevolent love of the Lord, it's also true that he was willing to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins so that sinners might receive the free gift of grace. And listen, he not only died for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That's what the Apostle John tells us. And so he's extended this benevolent love to any sinner who will simply receive it. With this in mind, we should also consider how God wants to guide us according to the sacrificial benevolence of his agape love. This is a way that he guides us. And to prove my point, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to take another look here at verse 5, because here Paul declares, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. May the Lord direct your hearts into the agape, benevolent love of God. I want to remind you, Paul's writing this letter to believers. This letter was sent to Christians at the church in Thessalonica. They had already received the love of the Lord by faith in Jesus Christ. And yet here he goes on to inform them that the Lord still wants to direct their hearts into the love of God. That word into, well, it's translated from a Greek preposition, which in this context is being used in reference to the ethical directions that God uses to guide us toward his loving end. So yeah, he he wants us to receive his agape love, but he also wants to direct us into or towards the end of his love. In other words, God guides us with ethical directions according to the sacrificial benevolence of his agape love. To further make my case, let's consider something that the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle. If you would hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 John chapter 4. As you make your way to the fourth chapter of 1 John, I just want to take a moment to point out that we've been called to love one another with the same sacrificial benevolence that Jesus demonstrated there on the cross. Think about that for a moment. We've been called to love one another with the same sacrificial benevolence that Jesus demonstrated there on the cross. Now, this is not to suggest that we've all been called to die on a cross. And yet there should be no doubt that we've all been called to love one another with the sacrificial benevolence of our Savior. I want to consider how the Apostle John puts it here in 1 John chapter 4. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 7. Here John declares, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. From this we can see that those who have received the agape love of the Lord by faith in Jesus Christ we've also now been called to become believers who are loving one another with the same sacrificial benevolence because God is love, therefore love is of God. Now, don't get it twisted because we're not talking about Eros. We're not talking about people who are all fired up in their you know, lustful passions for one another and then say, well, love is love. Love is love is love, and so we, you have to love us, and we love each other, and it's all, let's just all come together in, in the name of love. Well, what kind of love are you talking about? Twisted sexual immoral love? That's what you think God is, is all about? Do, do you think he's interested in storge or phileo or these other kinds of love? No, we're talking about agape love. We're talking about sacrificial benevolence. This is the kind of love that God is interested in. When John says that love is of God because God is love, that's agape love. And this is the kind of love that Christians have been called to extend to others. The Lord wants to guide us into the love of the Lord by helping us to love others with the sacrificial benevolence of our savior. With that being the case, we ought to be looking for every opportunity to love others with agape love, with sacrificial benevolence, which is to say that we're to love people even when they don't deserve it, even when they haven't earned it. I like the way that Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 5. There he declares, Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Christian, listen, we've been called to become imitators of God by walking in the agape love of Jesus Christ. With this as the goal, it's important to remember that the Lord is calling us to love one another with sacrificial benevolence. God wants to guide us by directing our hearts into the love of the Lord so that we might offer ourselves as a living sacrifice so that we might be a sweet-smelling aroma to those who trust in him. And, of course, this is pointing back to the sacrificial system where all the, the cattle and goats and sheep were being offered up on an open fire. And It's like when I got here to the church this morning, I could smell the, the smoke from the barbecue place over here, and it was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. I got out of the truck and just started worshipping. But this ought to be true of us. We ought to be sacrificing ourselves. Not by necessarily throwing ourselves on a barbecue pit. But by sacrificing the things that we want so that we can help others experience the love of God. The Lord wants to guide us to become those sacrificial believers who are helping others to experience the sacrificial benevolence of our Savior Jesus Christ. And so we see then that the Lord has a plan to provide us with godly guidance. And and while it's true that godly guidance involves scriptural intelligence, which provides us with the directions that we need, we can also see how godly guidance involves a sacrificial benevolence that the Lord is leading us to offer up so that others might experience his love as they interact with us. Thirdly and finally, godly guidance involves spiritual endurance. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Here we find Paul. He's referring to the patience that comes from following Christ Jesus. And if you would, look with me once again, beginning at verse 5. Here again, Paul declares, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of God. Of Christ. Now here in the second half of this verse, we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that God is guiding every believer into a life of spiritual endurance as he directs us into the patience of Christ. And just to be clear, that word patience is translated from a Greek word, which was used in reference to the perseverance of those who endure every trouble with steadfast purpose. Not only that, but the same Greek word was also used of the born-again believer who endures every trial as we continue to stay on course, all the while waiting for the return of Christ Jesus. I want to consider again how the scholars who created the King James Version of the Bible render verse 5. They put it like this. The Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting... For Christ. Interesting. The Lord wants to guide us into the patient waiting for Christ. The scholars who gave us the King Jimmy version of the Bible, you know, they they take the original Greek word which is rendered patience in our in the New King James, and here they render it patient waiting which is a valid translation, and as we consider the context from the previous chapter, remember, you know, we made our way through chapter 2, and we saw all about Paul explaining the second coming of Christ, and the rapture of the church, and the removal of the restrainer, and the rise of the Antichrist, and these sorts of things, and now he's saying, hey, the Lord wants to help you. He wants to guide you on this tour of terrible things as we wait for the second coming of Christ, as we wait for the the removal of the restrainer and the rapture of the church and these sorts of things. The Lord wants to guide us so that we wait patiently. I don't know about you, but I'm getting pretty impatient. But then I read this verse and I go, yeah, he wants me to be patient in these days. The Lord wants to guide our hearts as we patiently wait for Christ Jesus and And to further prove my point, I want to consider something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 21. It's verses 16 through 19 where he declares, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair on your head shall be lost. I just have a hard time taking that verse seriously. But anyway, He says, Not a hair on your head shall be lost. I guess the Lord's storing mine somewhere. But then he says this By patience, by your patience, possess your souls. By your patience, possess your souls. As we consider the Lord's description of the last days, we see here that the last days will be a time when believers are betrayed even by unbelieving family members. And knowing that we will face many trials and troubles along the way, we will face many persecutions at the hands of those who hate Christ. Jesus encouraged his disciples to maintain our commitment to him with patient endurance. With this as the goal, it's important for us to remember the example of patient endurance that the Lord Jesus demonstrated as he allowed his persecutors to punish him, even with the pain of death. But this has the focus. I want to consider the encouragement that Paul presented to the Hebrew believers back in the first century. And so, if you will, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And as you make your way to the 12th chapter of Hebrews, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the deity of the Lord Jesus is the omnipotent or all-powerful Logos of God. Within the humanity of Jesus Christ exists the deity of Jesus Christ who is the all-powerful Logos of God. And with that being the case, listen, uh, he could have easily avoided the cross. He could have easily avoided the cross. He could have simply snapped his fingers and just ended everyone who was trying to persecute him. But he didn't. He didn't. No, instead, the Lord Jesus patiently endured the scourge and the insults and the plucking of the beard and the crown of thorns and the mockery and the pain of the cross. He endured all of it with patience, even on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He patiently endured all of this because our Savior was sent to accomplish the will of his Heavenly Father, which includes all of this. It includes the death of the cross. And in light of our Savior's example, Paul encouraged every Christian to look unto Jesus so that we can run our race with spiritual endurance. With this as the focus, I want to turn our attention now to Hebrews chapter 12. Look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Now here in these verses, we find Paul encouraging his Hebrew audience to become those believers who were ready to Persevere the pain of persecution with spiritual endurance. And with this as the goal, he reminds them of the way in which the Lord Jesus himself endured the cross. And he did this by focusing on the joy that was set before him, which of course includes the salvation of those who would trust in him. That's right, Jesus was willing to patiently endure the hostility of sinners and the pain and the shame of the cross so that sinners like us might be saved. In similar fashion, the Lord now wants to direct our hearts into the love of God as he guides us into the patience of Christ, the patience that Christ Jesus demonstrated there on the cross. God wants to guide us into the patience that Christ Jesus presented as he endured the cross. And while he could have called for the angels of heaven to come and spare him from his persecutors, he didn't. No, instead he simply endured the cross so that he could become the author and the finisher of our faith. And now those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, we should understand that we're being called to follow our Savior's example of spiritual endurance as we patiently endure the persecution that we experience here in this world. And listen, the Lord is not only calling us to be patient with those who persecute us, but he's also calling us to be patient with one another as as, as we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And to prove my point, let's turn in our Bibles now to to the book of Colossians. I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of Colossians, uh, we should spend a second considering the conflicts that often occur within every fellowship of faith. You might not know this, but every church experiences relational conflicts. And so if you think that you can escape relational conflicts by leaving this church and going to another church, well, guess what? Uh, there's a relational conflicts over there too. And they're way worse than ours. No, I don't, I don't know. Who knows? Every church you go, anytime you put you know, two or more together... Not only is Jesus there in the midst of them, but so is relational conflict. Because this is just human nature. Every church experiences relational conflicts as close connections begin to divide over issues that arise in every relationship and oftentimes over things that really just don't matter. Some of us just love drama. It's for this reason that we must allow our God to guide us into the patience of Christ as we learn to interact with one another lovingly. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Colossians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 12, here he declares, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Christian, listen. We haven't been called to create divisions with you know, the other carnal Christians who are creating conflicts because they have a consumerism mentality about why they're at church. No, we've been called to patiently bear with one another as we extend the same forgiveness that we've received from the Lord. And what this has the calling we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I allowing the Lord to direct my heart into the love of God and into the patience of Christ as we learn how to bear with one another? Is that how I am? Or am I the Christian who's constantly holding grudges against those who have sinned against me because I just don't know how to offer the forgiveness that I've received? With this question in mind, we should take a moment to consider another reason for why the Lord allows us to endure the trials and the troubles of this world. And with this as the focus, let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of James, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord is the one who's able to work all things together for the good of those who love him. Yes or no? Yes, of course. The Lord is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him. Do you believe that's true about persecution? Do you believe that's true about the conflicts you have with other Christians? Is the Lord working those things together for the good of those who love him or no? With this question in mind, I want to consider something that James says here in James chapter one. Look with me there beginning at verse two here. James declares my brethren count it all joy When you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. According to James here, the Lord has a perfect plan for the trials and the troubles that he allows And if you really believe that, then what are you grumbling about? If you really believe the word of God, if we really believe what God is saying here, then wouldn't we count it all joy when we find ourselves in the midst of trials and troubles? You see, the testing of our faith produces patience, which then results in our perfection. Do you not want to be perfected? If the trials and the troubles are the way that God directs us into patience so that we can be perfected, then why would we complain about it? And if you think the problem is with the other person, guess what? It's probably more about you. Because the Lord will continue to bring us through trials and troubles because his goal is to perfect us. And so rather than grumbling, rather than complaining, rather than being upset because somebody said the wrong words or or treated you poorly or whatever the case is, listen, don't grumble about it. Just recognize that this is God's way of helping you to become patient on the path of perfection. So yeah, the Lord is using every trial and every trouble to direct us into the patience of Christ. How can you begin to develop the patience of Christ in a world where you never experience troubles and trials? How can we be perfected if there's no plan for perfecting us? we should look at every trial and every trouble as a reason to rejoice knowing that god is allowing these things so that we can learn patience on the path of perfection now as we begin to wrap up this study i don't want to you know cause you to struggle with impatience so let's go ahead and bring this in for a landing you know but it's my hope that we'll all trust god to guide us into his perfect will Whether you like what's happening in your life or not, can you trust God to guide you? And while it's not uncommon for some to think that they can just get out there and make it on their own without any guidance from God, these are what we call foolish people. They don't seek counsel from Christian leaders. They, they don't really spend any time in daily devotions. They, they think that they can get out there and get her done on their own. They don't really need the man upstairs to help them. Foolishness. I encourage you to realize that when it comes to the narrow path of righteousness, we need guidance and there's no better guide than God. And with that being the case, I encourage you to remember that the Lord provides godly guidance through scriptural intelligence, which is why we ought to wake up every day and seek the scriptures for the godly intel that he has for us. The Lord provides godly guidance through sacrificial benevolence. And so you better believe that the Lord is going to lead you to sacrifice things for the benefit of others. And the Lord provides godly guidance through spiritual endurance as he leads us into the patience of Jesus Christ for our perfection. And as we consider these benefits that belong to the believers who are following the directions of the Lord, I encourage you in closing... Let's continue to walk by faith with Jesus Christ, believing that God is able to guide us. And as we do, then he will provide us with godly guidance. Let's pray.